Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon, director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is hosting this uh, book forum today. Uh, I want to thank all of you for coming out on this wintry day here in Washington to a talk on liberty of contract. Um, not exactly the sexiest uh, topic uh, of the day. It, nevertheless, it is um, very, very important topic, as you will see, as we hear from um, David uh, Mayer in just a few minutes. Um, this is the third of four books that Cato um, has or will be publishing, uh, all on the large theme of the role of the progressives and the progressive era in changing uh, the um, legal regime in this country. Uh, back in 2006, we published Richard Epstein's uh, How Progressives Rewrote the Constitution. And then um, in October of that year, we did Tim Sanders, Tim Sandifer's book on property rights. Um, and then uh, just last September, uh, we published uh, another book by Tim Sandifer, The Right to Earn a Living, Economic Freedom and the Law, which dealt with the broad subject of economic liberty in all of its uh, ramifications and how the progressives have fundamentally undermined that right. Uh, in the spring, uh, we're going to be co-publishing with the University of Chicago Press uh, a book uh, by David Bernstein over at the George Mason University Law School uh, entitled Rehabilitating Lochner, which, which will focus upon that most famous or, in the views of some, infamous cases in which the Supreme Court uh, upheld the right to freedom of contract, something that David Mayer discusses in his book as well. But his book is in many respects uh, the most foundational of this whole series of books because it goes to the core uh, right that uh, we think of when we think of interaction between people. I mean, after all, the way we come together uh, voluntarily in a free society is through promise or contract. And so liberty of contract is essential to that if you're going to have a free society. Indeed, at common law, there were two fundamental rights, property and contract, uh, which uh, in all of their variations can be thought of as securing the foundation of a free society. They came to be protected slowly over the 500-year evolution of the common law. They were the background for the framers when they sat down to draft the Constitution, they assumed that courts would protect those rights, and courts did protect them to a substantial degree. Not entirely, of course. There was no golden age of liberty at any point in our history. At various times, different liberties were respected uh, with different levels of judicial uh, care. Nevertheless, uh, by and large, the right to freedom of contract was protected. And this came to be especially the case when the progressives started to uh, institute a, or try to institute a number of statutory programs that sought to, saw to undermine the liberty of contract in the name of the various policy goals that they sought. And there the court came to refine the doctrine of uh, freedom of contract somewhat more carefully, but still it was not, as David brings out in this essay, an era of unbridled libertarian or laissez-faire uh, liberty. 
the court, in fact, uh, sort of split the difference in many cases along the way. But of course, things came to a head during the New Deal and the uh, onslaught of attack on the uh, freedom of contract. Well, um, what we have in this book is a, a subtitle, Rediscovering the Lost Constitutional Right. This is a subtle, penetrating analysis. Uh, for example, Stephen Presser at Northwestern University Law School says that of David that he is emerging as one of the most insightful constitutional scholars on the scene today. Uh, he says that this book will take its place as one of the most important works in constitutional history in the early 21st century. Uh, those of you who are viewing this uh, uh, through a through a simulcast, we'll be able to order it at the Cato website, and it's available, of course, right outside for those of you in the audience, both in hardcover and, um, and in softcover, and David at lunch will be glad to sign the book for you. David Mayer uh, is a PhD JD. He did his undergraduate degree at the University of Michigan, where he graduated with the highest honors uh, in history. Uh, he did his JD at the University of Michigan in 1980, and then he did a master's degree in history at the University of Virginia in 1982, and a PhD in history at the University of Virginia in 1988. Uh, his doctoral decision, uh, dissertation came out in the form of a book entitled The Constitutional Thought of Thomas Jefferson, aptly uh, written at the University of Virginia. Um, before joining the Capital University School of Law, where he is a professor today, he taught at the, um, Institute of, the Illinois Institute of Technology, uh, Chicago Kent College of Law in Chicago. Uh, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. Uh, he practiced law with the Washington firm of Pearson, Semis, and Finley. Um, he's authored numerous articles. He was a former uh, Salvatore Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He also serves on the Board of Academic Advisors for the Buckeye Institute, a public policy uh, institute in Ohio. Um, he is a member of the Fellowships Academic Review Committee for the Institute for Humane Studies and the Speakers Bureau of the Objectivist Center. He teaches courses in constitutional history, copyright law, law in American history, legal history, unfair trade practice, and a seminar on libertarianism and the law. Please welcome David Mayer. A former dean of my law school um, disliked books that had complicated titles. Uh, he bemoaned the colon, uh, the tendency of uh, academics, especially law professors, to write articles or books that had colons in it, main title, colon, subtitle. Um, he loved the title of my first book, The Constitutional Thought of Thomas Jefferson, because it was nice and simple uh, and didn't have uh, the colon and the subtitle. Um, he may not be all that happy about the title of this new book, um, but I think it's essential. Uh, the main title, Liberty of Contract, is what the book is about. But because most people don't know what liberty of contract is, it needs a subtitle. So what comes after the colon is equally important rediscovering a lost constitutional right. Because for a 40-year period, between 1897 and 1937, the US Supreme Court 
protected as a fundamental right, something that it called liberty of contract, the freedom of individuals to enter into contracts, to bargain over the terms, and to set the terms of their own contracts. That freedom was part of the general right to liberty that was protected by the Constitution, by the due process clauses of the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. Fifth Amendment against the national government, the Fourteenth Amendment against the state governments. Laws that deprive persons of that liberty were declared unconstitutional and struck down by the Supreme Court. These included such things as maximum hour laws, minimum wage laws, housing segregation laws, and by that I mean laws mandating racial segregation in housing, licensing laws and other laws limiting entry into certain markets, laws banning insurance contracts with out-of-state firms, an interesting category of law considering the debate today over, over government regulation of health care and health insurance, and finally laws interfering with freedom of parents to determine what kind of schooling their children receive. My book is the first comprehensive treatment of this 40-year period when the court protected liberty of contract as a fundamental right. It's also known as the Lochner era because of the most famous, or as Roger suggested, the infamous uh, decision of the Supreme Court, Lochner versus New York in 1905, um, which is viewed by many as sort of the epitome of the liberty of contract cases. But this period is also the most, most misunderstood period in U.S. constitutional history, hence the need to re rediscover uh, the court's protection of liberty of contract. Why is it so misunderstood? Well, it's because there is a traditional or orthodox view of the so-called Lochner era that has dominated for several generations now. It's the view that has been taught to several generations of law students in their constitutional law classes. It's the view uncritically accepted by most legal scholars, by justices of the Supreme Court, by journalists, political commentators, and so on, on both sides of the political spectrum, both left and right, both liberal and conservative. Now, this traditional or orthodox view is based on several myths. They're very important myths because they're the myths, they're among the key myths, uh, myths about history, about economics, about the law, that help to support, to prop up the 20th century regulatory state, the modern welfare state. Now, chief among these myths is the one that I call the myth of laissez-faire constitutionalism. Um, that's what some scholars also refer to the Lochner period as, a period of so-called laissez-faire constitutionalism. It's, uh, in my view, the constitutional law equivalent of a modern urban legend. Uh, the legend began with Oliver Wendell Holmes, Justice Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., in his dissent in the Lochner case, where he accused the majority of the justices erroneously uh, as deciding the case based upon an economic theory, an ideology, laissez-faire ideology. Um, he mentioned the best-known 
English classical liberal philosopher of the late 19th century, Herbert Spencer, and his most famous work, Social Statics. And in a famous passage that is often quoted from Justice Holmes' dissent, he said, the Constitution does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics, therefore accusing the majority of reading this laissez-faire ideology into the Constitution. Now, this caricature by Holmes of what the majority of the court did in the Lochner case was reinforced by the interpretation of scholars and jurists during the so-called progressive era. I always refer to uh, the early 20th century uh, progressive era, capital P progressive era, as so-called progressive era, because uh, I agree with that great individualist writer of the 1930s and 40s, Isabel Patterson, uh, who once uh, commented that the term progressives, as identified with this early 20th century movement, was really a misnomer. Um, that the idea of pervasive government regulation of economic and social life that the progressives were pushing uh, really harkened back to uh, a pre-modern, uh, uh, medieval, pre-industrial, paternalistic public policy, uh, not at all progressive, at least as libertarians would see it. Um, she said, if you go back 150 years, you're called, you're reactionary, but if you go back 1,000 years, she said sarcastically, you're considered in the foremost ranks of progress. Uh, well, the early 20th century so-called progressive movement and many scholars uh, in that movement, men like Roscoe Pound, Learned Hand, Charles Warren, um, they were not neutral in their analysis of liberty of contract. They were supporters of the progressive movement, supporters of the kinds of laws that the court struck down, so-called social legislation laws. It's a term of art that legal historians have used for this new category of laws, really literally unprecedented laws being pushed in the early 20th century that rather than being laws that generally applied to everybody, uh, applied only to particular classes in society, presumably to protect vulnerable classes, but based explicitly on a very paternalistic theory uh, about government. Um, because they supported these laws, this so-called social legislation, they were hostile to the individualist philosophy they perceived in the court decisions protecting liberty of contract. And their personal hostility to that philosophy colored their criticism of the jurisprudence. Modern scholars who interpret cases like Lochner by relying on the views of uh, such early 20th century progressives, partisans like Pound, Hand, or Warren, um, would make the same kind of mistake that future historians would make in, for example, relying on the views of the national right to life in interpreting the court's decision in Roe versus Wade. They're, they're, they're clearly a partisan, partisan view. But um, that allegation, that charge that Holmes levied against the majority uh, stuck, so much so that uh, the traditional view uh, of the uh, era of liberty of contract, of the so-called Lochner era, um, is of judges reading their own subjective views, reading a uh, ideology found outside the Constitution into the text of the Constitution. Um, in other words, what today is bemoaned as judicial activism. Um, the 
early progressive critics of the court and its liberty of contract decisions were some of the first uh, people to decry what they called uh, judicial activism. And the charge, even though it's an unfair charge, uh, stuck um, because um, liberty of contract, the court's protection of it, cases like Lochner, are thought of as synonymous with uh, a type of judicial activism. In fact, some sc modern scholars have even suggested a verb uh, to Lochnerize is to have judges read their own personal views uh, into uh, their case decisions. Now, this myth is indeed a myth. The charge is unfair. Holmes was wrong because the majority opinion in the Lochner case, written by Justice Rufus Peckham, was not based on Herbert Spencer's social statics or any other kind of laissez-faire libertarian writing. It was based on objective application of well-understood principles of constitutional law. Um, chapter one of my book talks about the historic foundation of those principles and talks about what uh, constitutional scholars call substantive due process. Uh, that term itself is somewhat misleading. In fact, the, the notion of uh, dividing uh, uh, protection through due, the due process clauses of the Constitution of liberty or property rights into two categories, procedural and substantive due process, is in fact a modern invention by some of these same progressive scholars who decried the court's uh, liberty of contract decisions. Due process of law going all the way back to its earliest origins in Magna Carta, the famous Clause 39, always had both substantive and procedural dimensions. Uh, the basic idea is government cannot take away people's life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It's not only a limitation on government acting according to proper procedures, it's also a limitation on what government can do substantively, uh, that government cannot pass laws, legislatures cannot pass laws that uh, abridge, uh, take away people's liberty or property rights uh, in areas where the government has no legitimate power to restrict those rights. Now that is a very old idea that actually predates the Constitution itself. In fact, some of the earliest substantive due process decisions were decisions by state Supreme Courts enforcing uh, the law of the land provisions, an early equivalent of the due process clause that was found in the earliest state constitutions. And there are many other decisions by both state and federal courts uh, in the 19th century, both before and after the Civil War, uh, where the courts protected liberty and property rights broadly and substantively through the due process clauses of state constitutions as well as the U.S. Constitution. Now, some of those cases, in fact, uh, 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 really were the very first liberty of contract cases before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, explicitly identified a right uh, called liberty of contract. Uh, state courts in Illinois and New York protected liberty of contract rights. There's a very interesting Illinois case, for example, Ritchie versus the People uh, in 1895, where the Illinois Supreme Court struck down a law limiting the hours that women could work, only women, in factories in the state. 
Uh, and uh, it struck it down as uh, uh, being uh, a violation of the protection of liberty under the due process clause of the Illinois state constitution. The court said women have the same rights as men do to determine how many hours they should work. That should be left up to their bargaining with their employers. There's no need in the law for special protection for women because they're legally competent to decide for themselves. A rather extraordinary decision coming from an Illinois Supreme Court that just 20 years earlier, in a very famous case, said that women could not practice law in the state of Illinois because law is a, uh, an occupation suited only uh, for women. But it recognizes uh, the degree to which women had started to move into occupations traditionally held by men, uh, especially in the post-Civil War period. I'll come back to this in just a little while. Um, so uh, what the court was doing in protecting liberty of contract was not engaging in a laissez-faire constitutionalism, reading a libertarian theory uh, into uh, the Constitution, but rather applying traditional uh, due process jurisprudence, protecting uh, constitutional limitations on the power of government to protect liberty and property rights. The court was also uh, enforcing the traditional understanding of the police power, this general regulatory power of government. Um, and uh, as it was seen in the 19th century, it was limited to certain categories, protecting public health, public safety, and morality. Um, Indeed, in chapter two of my book, um, I show why this myth of laissez-faire constitutionalism, as I call it, is indeed a myth by contrasting with what the court was actually doing in its protection of liberty of contract with a model of what a true laissez-faire constitutionalism would look like. In other words, if the Supreme Court was really doing what Justice Holmes accused it of doing in his Lochner dissent, how different would constitutional law be? Well, Herbert Spencer, in his famous work, Social Statics, um, devised his law of equal freedom, which said that everybody should be free to do whatever they wish, so long as they don't interfere with the equal freedom of others to do the same. It's very similar to what modern libertarians call the no harm principle. Um, a true laissez-faire constitutionalism would limit the scope of the police power to enforcement of that principle. And there actually was a model for something like a true laissez-faire constitutionalism, or at least closer to it than anything the Supreme Court actually did in the early 20th century. There was an early 20th century legal scholar named Christopher Tiedemann, who was a law professor at the University of Missouri. And in his books on constitutional limitations on the police power, Tiedemann suggested that government regulation of people's liberty and their property should be limited to enforcing this principle, essentially that no one should use their liberty or their property in a way that directly harms anybody else. Anything short of that, people should be free to use their property and liberty uh, as they wish. Um, Tiedemann uh, uh, was even so radical as to suggest uh, decriminalization of laws, uh, uh, criminalizing the use of drugs or gambling or prostitution, other so-called vice uh, legislation. And of course, the court uh, came nowhere close to embracing his views. Uh, in fact, I could not find any court that followed Tiedemann's 
narrow view of the police power in striking down laws, particularly morals legislations. Um, indeed, another part of this myth of this era of laissez-faire constitutionalism um, is that many, many laws, both state and federal, that were challenged uh, as violating the due process clause were upheld uh, by the courts, by the Supreme Court and other uh, courts. Relatively few laws uh, were struck down as infringements of liberty of contract because the court was not following uh, a narrow view of the police power as suggested by Tiedemann and other laissez-faire writers. Uh, they followed this traditional notion of the police power limited to protecting public health, safety, morality, and there's a certain slipperiness in those, uh, uh, in those terms. Uh, for example, even though the traditional view of the police power in the 19th century was to protect public health, uh, the court in the years both before and after the Lochner decision began using or upholding the law, laws that protected the health of particular workers. Um, uh, a case just a few years before Lochner, Holden versus Hardy in 1898, the court upheld a law setting maximum hours for workers in mines and smelting operations because of the exceptional or unusual, extraordinary dangerousness of those occupations. And just a few years, three years after the Lochner decision, in 1908, the court in Mueller versus Oregon upheld a maximum hours law uh, for women who worked in factories. You know, unlike the Illinois Supreme Court in 1895, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, continued to look at women in a very sexist, paternalistic way. The court accepted the government's rationale for limiting the hours of women who worked in factories uh, because it said the state had an interest in protecting the health of women uh, because vigorous offspring are necessary for uh, the well-being of society if we should go to war. Uh, I, I mention that because the state of New York, in the Lochner case, tried to defend the maximum hours law uh, applying to male employees in bakeries, in the Lochner case, uh, on similar grounds, saying the state has an interest in protecting uh, working, the, the health of working class men, so if we should go to war, we will have uh, you know, healthy men that we can draft. Uh, and the court uh, rejected that argument, emphasizing that there's nothing uh, especially dangerous about the occupation of a baker, that it's an ordinary occupation. Uh, as I tell my law students, uh, Justice Peckham, in his majority opinion in Lochner, uh, uh, suggests a sort of parade of horribles. Uh, where will it stop if the government starts uh, setting maximum hours for workers in ordinary occupations? It might even limit the hours of, of professional men, like doctors or lawyers. You know, heaven forbid that lawyers' billable hours would be restricted uh, by, the, by the government. What could be a more blatant example of paternalism than something like that? Um, so the myth of laissez-faire uh, constitutionalism. Um, as I show in the book, what the Supreme Court actually did in protecting liberty of contract was to enforce a kind of general presumption in favor of liberty. Legal scholars would call this a moderate means ends test. If a law interferes with someone's liberty, 
the court would strike down that law as unconstitutional uh, uh, through its protection of liberty under the Due Process Clause unless it could be shown that the law had a sufficiently close relationship as a means to an end of a legitimate exercise of government's uh, police power. And again, in the vast majority of cases, the court upheld laws because it interpreted the police power fairly broadly, even within those traditional categories, those 19th century categories um, that I talked about. Um, so the orthodox view, the traditional view of the so-called Lochner era um, really has it almost exactly backwards. Real judicial activism with uh, the justices reading their own policy preferences into the Constitution did not come with the court's enforcement of the rights to liberty or property through the due process clauses uh, before 1937. But it did come with the court's abandonment of liberty of contract as a fundamental right as part of the so-called New Deal revolution, which occurred in 1937. In that year, in a series of very important cases, the Supreme Court upheld um, several uh, New Deal laws at both the state and federal level. One of the laws that they upheld in the case of West Coast Hotel versus Parish was a law that uh, concerned is a Washington state statute that set minimum wages for workers. Um, and in upholding the law, the court overturned Adkins versus Children's Hospital, which I'll mention in just a few minutes, a very important liberty of contract case from the 1920s. And the court announced a new test, what scholars today, legal scholars call the minimal rational basis test for uh, uh, protecting liberty and property rights under the Due Process Clause. As long as there was some rational basis uh, for the law, the law would uphold it. Under that test, all sorts of laws that infringe particularly on economic liberty and property rights have been upheld by the court since 1937, virtually all kinds of government regulation of business. Um, but there's another part of the court's post-1937, it's modern judicial activism. Uh, and that is what scholars on both sides of, of uh, really on all sides uh, of uh, constitutional debate, both liberals, conservatives, and libertarians, uh, recognize as uh, a double standard in modern constitutional law. Uh, certain rights, economic liberty, property rights particularly, uh, are not given much protection because they're protected with this minimal uh, uh, rational basis test. Other rights um, are given much higher degree of protection. Uh, that's because of a, another famous case, actually not a case itself, a footnote in a case, uh, the Caroline Products case in 1938, where in footnote four, the court said that certain kinds of rights might be given a higher level of protection. And indeed, the modern court has given a higher degree of protection under the so-called strict scrutiny standard to certain rights that scholars call the preferred freedoms. By that they mean the freedoms, the aspects of liberty that are preferred or valued by left liberal judges and by the left liberal uh, uh, constitutional uh, theories that have dominated since the late 1930s. Um, so the myth, laissez-faire constitutionalism, 
one of the most important myths that I hope my book helps to shatter. Another myth that the book shatters is that liberty of contract protected only economic liberty and that it benefited rich capitalists, not ordinary working class men and women. Uh, now this myth derives from the fact that the best known liberty of contract cases involve labor laws, government regulation of employment, maximum hours laws like the law involved in the Lochner case, or minimum wage laws like the law involved in Adkins versus Children's Hospital. Adkins is a very interesting case, decided by the court in 1923 and concerned one of the earliest minimum wage laws, uh, a law passed by Congress, a federal law. This is Congress act exercising its authority as essentially the legislature for the District of Columbia, um, setting minimum wages for women in the District of Columbia. Um, it actually, uh, rather than having a set amount uh, as minimum wage for all occupations, it created a board, and the board had broad discretionary power to determine what wage level it considered adequate for particular occupations, presumably to protect women's health and morals. That was the extensive basis of the law. But the date that the law was passed is suspect. 1918, late October 1918, just as World War I is ending. Now what happened during World War I? Women moved into many occupations traditionally held by men while men were over in Europe fighting the war. Same thing that had happened during the Civil War. Now that the war was winding down and all of these male service members will be coming back to the United States, we wanted to make sure that they would have jobs for them. So to protect the health and morals of women, uh, the Congress uh, created this board that essentially tried to price women's labor out of the marketplace. Um, so uh, 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 that's one of the things that is overlooked uh, by most people when they talk about liberty of contract. They focus on liberty of contract protecting the rights of employers, but they forget the rights of employees to bargain over the terms of their own contract. Uh, what's often overlooked is that liberty of contract protected uh, the rights of women, like uh, Willie Lyons. Willie Lyons was a, one of the parties challenging the D.C. law in the Adkins case. Um, she lost her job as an elevator operator at a hotel, uh, even though she was willing to work for less wages than the D.C. board had deemed uh, sufficient as the minimum. She, she was willing to work her, her contract with the hotel, uh, uh, paid her relatively little in wages, but she got room and board from the hotel. She was perfectly pleased with that. But because her wage level was below that minimum that was set by the board, she lost her job, presumably to a male uh, hotel uh, operator or elevator operator. Um, what about the rights of immigrant workers, uh, young men from Eastern and Southern Europe, um, some of whom worked in non-unionized bakeries in New York State, like Joseph Lochner's bakery in the famous Lochner case in Utica, New York. Now, these young immigrant workers uh, didn't unionize. They were willing to work in uh, uh, bakeries for long hours, more than 
10 hours a day, 60 hours a week, which was the, uh, 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 the, the hours that were uh, set by the New York law. They happened to be the same terms that were in typical union contracts at the time. Uh, why would these immigrant workers be willing to work those long hours? Well, many of them stayed actually slept in the bakeries themselves. They worked during the night. Um, they wanted to have, they wanted to make money. They wanted to have, uh, make as much money as they, as, they, as they could, and they're willing to work long hours in order to get more money uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, uh, and talking about the Lochner case to my students, I, you know, I, I throw this question out, you know, why would a, an immigrant worker, a non-union immigrant worker, be willing to work more than 10 hours a day, 60 hours a week in uh, Mr. Lochner's bakery shop? The answer is obvious because they needed the dough. That's the same reaction I get from my students when I, when I, when I talk about that case. Uh, but the point is, who's, who's better situated to decide what the hours or the wages for a given job should be than the worker who is bargaining for the job with the employer? Uh, what the court did in uh, enforcing and protecting liberty of contact was protect that right for employees as well as employers, something that's often overlooked. Uh, another thing that's often overlooked by uh, stereotyping uh, liberty of contract cases as dealing with economic liberty or economic substantive due process is that it had other important dimensions, other important protections of liberty besides economic, at least in the narrow context of labor law or employment law. Um, in the first place, I think it's important to note that uh, uh, this distinction between economic liberty and personal liberty, which a lot of uh, modern uh, commentators uh, uh, use, is a rather artificial one. Um, economic liberty is personal. It's certainly personal to the person who is exercising uh, the liberty. Um, and uh, uh, liberty, as viewed uh, uh, certainly by libertarians, is an undifferentiated whole that has many aspects, some economic, some non-economic. Uh, what the court protected in liberty of contract and its liberty of contract cases were important aspects of liberty that many who do recognize this distinction would regard as personal or non-economic liberties, as well as economic liberties in the narrow sense. Um, it's important to note, first, the broad scope of the liberty that was protected under the Constitution, uh, Constitution's Due Process Clause. Um, Justice Peckham, in his opinion for the court in Algier versus Louisiana, this is in 1897, the first explicit US Supreme Court uh, liberty of contract case, uh, defined the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause this way. He said, the liberty mentioned in that amendment means not only the right of the citizen to be free from the mere physical restraint of his person, as by incarceration, but, is a term, but the term is deemed to embrace the right of the citizen to be free in the enjoyment of all his faculties, to be free to use them in all lawful ways, to live and work where he will, to earn his livelihood by any lawful calling, to pursue any livelihood or avocation, and for that purpose to enter into all contracts which may be proper, necessary, and essential to his carrying to a successful conclusion the purposes above mentioned. So liberty of contract had a very broad meaning, a very broad application. Another example of that is a case decided in the 1920s, uh, the opinion by Justice James McReynolds, 
Meyer versus Nebraska. This is how he described the liberty guaranteed by the 14th Amendment in that case. Without doubt, it denotes not merely freedom from bodily restraint, but also the right of the individual to contract, to engage in any of the common occupations of life, to acquire useful knowledge, to marry, establish a home, bring up children, to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience, and generally to enjoy those privileges long recognized at common law as essential to the orderly pursuit of happiness by free men. Liberty of contract protected the right of individuals to live on their own terms, to pursue happiness on their own terms, and to enter into whatever contracts, lawful contracts, they deemed appropriate uh, to do so. Um, some important liberty of contract cases outside of that narrow economic liberty, labor law, or employment law context uh, should be noted. One of them is Buchanan versus Worley in 1917, where the court struck down a Louisville, Kentucky ordinance that prohibited homeowners from selling their property to purchasers of a different race than the majority of the neighborhood. It was a law intended to preserve racial segregation in housing. Yet the court struck it down in 1917, during World War I, on due process grounds, because it interfered with the freedom of the homeowner to determine to whom they should sell their home, their property right, their economic liberty right. It's protected under the due process clause. Now, this is a case that ought to be considered a landmark civil rights decision. Uh, it came during World War I, which is an era that's not very known for its uh, the Supreme Court's civil liberties uh, decisions. Very important case in that uh, period of time in between the infamous Plessy versus Ferguson case in 1896, the separate but equal doctrine, and Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. Yet the case is virtually forgotten today. It's typically not covered in constitutional law case books. Why? simply because it doesn't fit the stereotype of Lochner-era jurisprudence, but it is indeed a liberty of contract case. Two other important cases from the 1920s are Meyer versus Nebraska and Pierce versus Society of Sisters. Meyer was decided in 1923. It struck down an early English-only law. Uh, this was in the state of Nebraska, another World War I-era law, uh, motivated, motivated by the anti-German uh, uh, bigotry of the time. Uh, in Nebraska, which is a state with a large German-speaking immigrant population, prohibited school children from being taught in any language other than English. So Mr. Meyer was being prosecuted because he was teaching uh, boys uh, in the German language, and the court struck down the law as interfering with his freedom of contract. Pierce versus Society of Sisters, 1925, two years later, Opinion in the, court, in, the, in, the, in the case was written also by Justice McReynolds, invalidating another law based on bigotry, a Ku Klux Klan-sponsored law in the state of Oregon that essentially required students to attend public schools. It prohibited children from attending private schools or parochial schools. Why? Because then is now the largest category of parochial schools were Roman Catholic schools, uh, and it's the anti-Catholic bigotry of the Klan. Um, the court struck that down as interfering with liberty of contract. Uh, the parties in that case were, as the name of the case suggests, Society of Sisters, a Catholic parochial school, but also a private non-sectarian military academy. Um, these cases, these two uh, school cases from the 1920s, somehow survived 
1937 New Deal revolution. They're still cited as valid precedents today, indeed as the earliest right to privacy cases, long before the Supreme Court explicitly protected uh, a constitutional right to privacy in Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. Um, why did they survive? Why are they still cited? Because they've been reconceptualized as cases involving the fundamental right of parents to decide what kind of education their children receive. They've been reconceptualized as right to privacy cases, when in fact they concerned liberty of contract. Um, in fact, uh, if you look at the facts of the case, even the names of the case, the real parties that interest in the case, the teacher, in Meyer, uh, the uh, private parochial school in Pierce, their right to uh, enter into a contract, to earn a livelihood, to stay in business, just as important as the parents' rights. Uh, uh, but that's overlooked uh, today. Um, that's why uh, uh, I argue that what is today protected as the constitutional right to privacy is in fact the last remaining vestige of the court's protection of liberty of contract before 1937. That's why it's important that we not forget it, that we rediscover this lost constitutional right. Well, I know I've spoken long enough, so I want to leave time for questions, so I'll stop there. Thank you, David. And now we're going to open it up to your questions. Please wait for the microphone to get to you. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation you may have. And uh, right up here for Trevor Burris, right up here. I was wondering, uh, how would you... Identify yourself. Trevor Burris from the Cato Institute. I was wondering how you uh, would specifically address the sort of, that as old as contract is, so are void contracts for duress and, and the concept of duress that was, you, know, you can't make a contract under duress, which was what they were saying the bakers were under duress economically, and how you would address that counter-argument. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the court during this period did not really uh, talk about, and in fact, people, uh, even, even the government, when it defended uh, these laws limiting uh, hours or wages, um, didn't really argue duress. That's kind of a modern argument that uh, 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 workers uh, can't protect themselves. Even in that case I mentioned, Holden versus Hardy, that involved workers in mines and smelting operations, um, the rationale under which the court upheld that law was not that uh, these workers were in duress and they had to sign the contract they had, or that they had little bargaining power, um, which might have been true because the courts at that, at that time in the 1890s were relatively hostile to labor unions, and you know, mine workers particularly was one of the more militant unions that was trying to organize. Uh, but the court focused on the uh, traditional use of the police power to protect public health or safety. And in this case, they said the safety of other workers, fellow employees in the mines, might be at stake. And so, again, under sort of this traditional notion, the police power coming in to protect people from actions of others that might be harmful to them was how the court rationalized it. It's, it was only you know, the progressive activists themselves and then modern-day progressives who have, you know, who've argued that 
Uh, and it really is kind of an elitist, kind of paternalistic argument that certain kinds of work, basically ordinary you know, working class people, aren't competent themselves to look out for their best interest. Uh, the laissez-faire theorists, interestingly enough, had a ready answer to that. William Graham Sumner, in his uh, wonderful little book, What Social Classes Owe to Each Other, said, um, you know, let workers form labor unions. You know, if, if workers are uh, uh, forced by duress or if they have little bargaining power vis-a-vis -vis employers uh, to bargain with terms, let them voluntarily form a union for collective bargaining. That's what unions uh, presumably should be for. Um, uh, but there's no need for the government to come in and look out for them in a paternalistic way. They can look out for themselves by collectively bargaining. Right there. Your summary reads like a um, best hits of um, judgments, uh, legal judgments in the last in the 20th century, and I was very interested in a lot of the, the subjects that you brought up. Uh, I wanted to ask you about um, interracial marriage and that period in which it was uh, debated, hotly debated, and then finally agreed upon mm -hmm. in the United States. That must have been very pivotal, and how did that relate to? Uh, contracts and, and, li and, and liberal clauses in that area as well. Yeah. Well, it doesn't directly relate to it because, you know, when the court finally addressed the issue of uh, laws prohibiting interracial marriage, it was in the Loving case, Loving versus Virginia, 1967, That's I believe, right. um, and using the Equal Protection Clause uh, by that time. Now, um, at the time period that I was talking about in the 1920s and 30s, uh, 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 presumably uh, the court would not have reached that kind of decision. That's why the court, uh, that case I mentioned, Buchanan versus Worley, uh, involving housing segregation, that's why the Equal Protection Clause really wasn't available to the court to strike down that law, because Plessy versus, versus Ferguson was still the precedent. And that said, if a law equally affected black persons and white persons, it was consistent with the equal protection of the laws. That's, that's basically what people mean by the shorthand uh, separate but equal when they characterize the Plessy decision. So because equal protection of the law um, would uphold uh, segregation laws, I think it would also have upheld uh, challenges to prohibitions on interracial marriage. But interestingly enough, you, you, if you're listening carefully, when I quoted from Justice McReynolds' opinion in Meyer versus Nebraska, he talked about the fundamental right of people to marry. Uh, and, you know, it's always dangerous to play sort of what-if games with, you know, what if the court had not overturned liberty of contract? What if, it, if, what if the court still protected liberty of contract as a fundamental right? What if the court really took seriously this idea that people have a fundamental liberty right to marry whomever they please? You might have had laws prohibiting interracial marriage struck down on due process grounds as well as equal protection grounds much earlier than the court did. You might even have laws prohibiting uh, marriage between persons of the same sex, uh, too, if, the if, if marrying a person of your choice is a fundamental right, part of the liberty protected by the Constitution. Well, David, in that switch uh, to different rationales like equal protection, uh, the court essentially uh, abandoned the earlier uh, look at police power. Um, and I wonder if you would say a little bit more about um, the switch 
in the conception of police power from people like Christopher Tiedemann, Tiedemann and, um, <clears throat> and uh, Thomas Cooley on one hand, and then Roscoe Pound on the other, wh who you didn't bring up yeah. and who's, who had a fundamentally different conception of police power as policy pursuit. Right. right. There, was, there was someone named Ernst Freund <clears throat> yes. who wrote a treatise uh, on the police power in the early 20th century that basically defined it as the broad power to protect public welfare whatever the hell that is. In other words, it became uh, a policy so, rationale. Yeah, uh, it became, well, it became virtually unlimited, yeah. you know, because uh, if it's in the, if it's a, you know, just like the minimal rational basis test, if it's adopted in the interest of the community, we, you know, we assume that it has a rational basis. What, what's the interest of the community? Uh, you know, as, as libertarians understand, there really is no such thing as society or the community having an interest other than the sum total of the interest of all the individuals that compose society, and often those interests are in conflict with one another. But uh, uh, part of the reason why I suggest in the last chapter of my book uh, several fundamental reasons why the court stopped protecting liberty of contract in 1937. Part of it is changing personnel on the court, which uh, explains uh, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the shift, the seemingly sudden shift in 1937, the so-called switch in time that saved nine. Um, but part of it is the slipperiness of the traditional understanding of the police power. Um, uh, if you look at 19th century treatises like Cooley's treatise, um, the rationale for the police power, theoretical rationale was, the reason why government has the authority to limit people's use of their property or their exercise of their liberty is to prevent them from harming directly other people through their liberty or property. So it was this nuisance law rationale. Uh, there's this Latin maxim, sic utere tuo ut alienum non lidas. For those of you who aren't current in your Latin, uh, that means so use your property so as not to harm that of others. You know, use, do what you wish as long as you don't harm other people. Only the laissez-faire theorists like Tiedemann carried that to its logical conclusion and said only those actions that are directly harmful to others could legitimately be regulated under the police power. That was a much narrower conception than what the courts were doing. The courts were enforcing this other view that, that really wasn't a kind of definitional view of the police power. It thought in terms of categories, uh, broad categories, but they were categories nevertheless, public health, safety, and morality. And they're broad, rather slippery categories. And slowly, over the course of the last couple of decades of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century, that notion, that 19th century notion of the police power in those categories kind of morphed into this power to protect the, quote, public welfare, so that it became virtually unlimited. Uh, and and, and, and uh, since, the, since the liberty of contract uh, standard, the test, was based on uh, a traditional understanding of the police power, when, when the scope of the police power changes and it becomes virtually unlimited, then uh, you know, the exceptions swallow up the rule. And that's essentially what happened. And then you have to like, turn to other rationales like equal protection yes, and so yes, forth. Yeah. Yes. Or privacy and what have you. Uh, John Samples right here. <clears throat> uh, 
Brussels Cato Institute. I'd like to pursue your uh, provocative statement right at the end about the right of privacy and mm -hmm. liberty of contract. Uh, just a moment, if I could, because this is the new the new uh, substantive due process versus the old, and I right. take it you want to sort of insist mm -hmm. that there's important connections between them. But when I think about the two of the major cases in the new substantive due process, Roe versus Wade and Lawrence v. Texas. I'm struck by the fact that you can think of Roe v. Wade as a liberty of contract, but for the people who are on the uh, pro-life side of it, it's kind of like a mob uh, contract, right? Mm -hmm. And the, the, which is a way of suggesting that the fundamental question is not really the contractual nature of it, but something about religion or about the way the court defined it in Roe v. Wade. Second, in Lawrence uh, v. Texas, really Justice Kennedy talks a lot about two things, or several things, intimacy, the home, the protection of the home, uh, intimate association, and then, of course, autonomy of the self. All of these are things that are not out in public in the way we think of contracts, even in pursuing our lives the way you, from the earlier decisions. They're really something about uh, that we don't think of as usually contractual relations, family, uh, people who live with us, and so on. So the question is: Is this connection really uh, a good one, or is in fact the two the two kinds of due process really fundamentally different? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, let's see. There are number, that's a very broad question. There are a number of different ways to answer that. One thing to note at the outset is uh, something I didn't mention in my talk is. You know, these liberty of contract cases arose in a period, late 19th, early 20th century, that was sort of the classic era of contract law. People uh, understood contract very broadly, um, not in terms of formal written contracts, or not in the simply business context, which is the way people think about contracts today, but uh, uh, essentially as, as people privately ordering their affairs by mutual agreement with other, with other people, uh, virtually synonymous with what libertarians today call civil society. So uh, protecting liberty in a broad sense, right, the liberty of contract was one aspect of this broad protection of liberty. Um, you might say that the modern right to privacy is... Um, related to, rather than being, you know, last remaining vestige of liberty of contract. But the reason I, I argue it's the last remaining vestige is if you look at uh, most of the Supreme Court uh, cases, I'm not sure about Roe, but I know cases uh, like Casey and other cases where uh, when the court says, uh, you know, that there is a right to privacy protected by the Constitution is well established, and they cite case precedents they invariably include these, these two liberty of contract cases from the 1920s, Meyer and Pierce. Um, and of course, they're both protection of liberty in a general sense. Uh, they're unenumerated rights. They're not explicitly in the Constitution. And um, in, uh, 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 in the Lawrence case, I think what, what's striking about Kennedy's opinion in Lawrence is that he doesn't really call it a privacy case. He, talk, he talks about uh, protection of liberty. Uh, that's why, for example, Randy Barnett wrote a very interesting uh, op-ed suggesting that you know, maybe the court is, is once again taking a kind of broader view uh, of, 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 of liberty. Uh, that's what I would point to to suggest uh, that uh, uh, what, what was left of the pre-1937 jurisprudence is uh, the court's protection of 
uh, uh, right to privacy today. Um, uh, I mentioned the Griswold case. Uh, uh, you know, conservatives like to criticize Douglas's opinion in Griswold uh, for talking about penumbras emanating from particular guarantees of the Bill of Rights. Uh, what's overlooked is why Douglas did that. He was afraid that if he grounded it on general protection of liberty under the Due Process Clause, that that would resurrect this pre-1937 jurisprudence. So that's why he tried to tie it, uh, this unenumerated right to privacy, to the enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights. So jurisprudentially speaking, Douglas's uh, opinion in Griswold, the first explicit modern right to privacy case, um, was kind of conservative. He also talked about marriage, protecting only marriage in the traditional context. And that, of course, was broadened to include the right to procreate or not to procreate, Roe versus Wade, and then, and, and then to sort of sexual right. But when you think about it, right to privacy today, as the court protects it today, um, is still very narrow. You know, it deals with sex. You know, why isn't a person's right to decide how many hours they should work or at what wages they should work? Why isn't there freedom to bargain for, their term, for the terms of their own labor? Why don't we think of that as part of the constitutional right to privacy? Why is that any less important an aspect of the right to privacy as simply sexual uh, relations? Uh, if the court viewed liberty as broadly as it did uh, pre-1937, uh, that would be the scope that we'd have, and, that, and that's the connection that I'm suggesting here. Um, yes, this gentleman right here. Uh, Michael Bolton, Cato Institute. Um, to provide a little background to what I'm about to ask, when I was in high school, um, I decided that I wanted to look for a job, and one of the suggestions that I would make to employers was that I would be willing to work for the first week for free, and then if they liked my work, they would hire me. Um, the first employer I ran into where I offered that suggestion, they told me it's illegal. And I found out that it was because of the state law and then the minimum wage laws. And I was wondering, to what extent would you suggest protecting um, minors, uh, you know, people under 18, since most of them, they're excluded from being able to sign on to a contract. Where, where exactly would that line be drawn where it would be acceptable for them to be a part of that contract and then where it wouldn't be. And also, has there ever been a, a case where that law has been challenged directly? Well, um, you know, the um, Adkins case that I mentioned that involved that D.C. minimum wage law, uh, it applied uh, not only to women but also to children. But that aspect of the law was not challenged. Um, uh, earlier Supreme Court decisions dealing with federal um, uh, 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 laws limiting uh, or regulating child labor were constitutionally challenged, but on federalism grounds. I think, I think both uh, the courts under kind of a traditional view of liberty of contract, at least as the courts enforced it pre-1937, and even laissez-faire scholars, people like William Graham Sumner and Christopher Tiedemann uh, would say that for people who are not sui juris, you know, who are not laws unto themselves, that's the Latin phrase that's used to mean legally competent people, for, for minors, for people who aren't yet adults of a legally competent age, government can legitimately restrict uh, uh, their employment. Um, uh, 
those are policy questions that I think are appropriate as part of the police power uh, of, the, of, of, of the states. Uh, this gentleman way in the back here. <clears throat> Uh, I'm Theodore Gebhardt. I'm just here representing myself. Uh, my memory may be a bit faulty here, and if so, please excuse me. But I believe I remember reading some time back um, a law review article written by William Howard Taft when he was Solicitor General in the 1890s, uh, strongly defending liberty of property and liberty of contract. And if my memory is correct, I believe he was in dissent in Atkins. And my question is, how did he reconcile that? What, what, was, what was his thinking in Atkins that brought him into dissent in that case? Um, I'm not certain. I do know, you know, I, I, I point when, you know, when, I, when I said that uh, the uh, stereotypical view of liberty of contract, the laissez-faire constitutionalism myth, as I call it, has it almost exactly backwards that judges really started reading their policy preferences into the law when they started upholding laws that limited uh, uh, liberty of contract. Uh, one of the examples I could cite is uh, uh, Chief Justice Taft in his dissent in Adkins because he blithely assumed, I, I think he said in his opinion, something like, the evils of the sweating system are well known. So, you know, as far as he was concerned, um, uh, uh, you know, that's what, that's what, the, that's what that uh, law was doing. It was protecting women from being exploited in workshops. Yeah, it was protecting them from uh, uh, even entering the workforce in the, in the first place. And so what many uh, modern scholars accuse uh, the pre-1937 court of doing, uh, taking a kind of legally formalist kind of a view, uh, ignoring the realities of society, social realities. I submit that's what the laws, uh, th that, that's the view that was, that was taken by the justices who, who wanted to defer to the legislature, who would uphold any kind of a law so long as some kind of connection to uh, uh, you know, public welfare uh, was identified. So um, uh, you know, Taft. You know, Taft is thought of as relatively libertarian, but it's only because we compare him uh, uh, to uh, you know to such paternalistic fascists as Teddy Roosevelt and, and Woodrow Wilson. Uh, compared to them, Taft uh, was libertarian, but really he was kind of a. Uh, I think in today's parlance, he'd be considered kind of like a mushy moderate, in fact, uh, given uh, his opinion in the Atkins case. Nick. <clears throat> I was just going to add to that. I, identify I, yourself, please. Uh, Nick Mosvick Cato. Um, <coughs> is that uh, Taft also famously in that dissent, uh, a lot of, I think, modern scholars like to suggest that uh, he was the wise voice who realized that Lochner had already been overruled in a 1917 case, though um, I can't for whatever reason. Bunting, Bunting, Bun versus, Bunting Oregon. versus Oregon, uh, which um, does not explicitly overrule Lochner and seems to be maybe more on a line of cases related to Mueller versus Oregon rather than Lochner. I'm not sure. 
Um, what do you think of that? Um, well, 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 the court had retreated, uh, uh, you know, because of that Bundy case. You know, I suggested kind of the slipperiness of the uh, health and safety rationale, so that uh, 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 you know the court was allowing government to exercise its police power. Uh, to limit hours of workers, so much so that, uh, you know, the Adkins case, I, I, I didn't say in my talk, I, I, to me, Adkins is uh, uh, my favorite liberty of contract case. It's not as well known as um, uh, 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 Lochner, um, but um, it has a very well-reasoned opinion by Justice George Sutherland, um, and it's very explicit in stating the standard, the test that the court is using. And that's where Sutherland comes out and essentially says, we're protecting liberty. You know, the general rule is liberty, uh, but government can legitimately limit liberty if it fits within one of the well-recognized exceptions, as he puts it. One of the exceptions is laws regulating the hours of workers. But see, wages are, are different because the common law traditionally had, you know, centuries-old antipathy to government price controls, government uh, regulation of prices. So wages, a minimum wage law was not constitutional. And, and, and the other thing I like about Adkins is there's a wonderful discussion in the case that's virtually overlooked by everybody today as to why minimum wage laws are unjust and unfair. Uh, you know, among, you know, both to the employees and in employers, they don't take into account the nature of the work, the nature of the market, uh, and so on. Just wonderful discussion of why inherently minimum wage laws violate people's liberty without due process of law. Yes, yes, yeah. They assume that that uh, uh, regulating hours, regulating wages are the same. And uh, at least if you look at it from sort of a common law perspective, there was a difference. And certainly the court did. But see, uh, see, that was the problem with the court's protection of liberty of contract, because the court did not have a well-articulated uh, uh, definition of the, the scope of the liberty, the right of liberty protected, and did not have a uh, clear test. It was this general presumption in favor of liberty that could be rebutted by showing of a legitimate use of the police power, because the police power was so uh, elastic uh, and could be expanded, eventually the exception swallowed up the rule, and that's why liberty of contract disappeared. And going back to the earlier question about uh, uh, the connection to right to privacy, I think many uh, people today who value the constitutional right to privacy ought to be concerned and ought to be familiar with the story of what happened to liberty of contract. Because if liberty of contract could disappear because it's on such shaky jurisprudential foundations, uh, uh, you, know, the, the, uh, uh, you know, the same kind of shaky foundations, you know, a, 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 uh, a foundation based on shifting sands uh, uh, is what underlies the modern uh, protection of the right to privacy, too. On question over here. Michael Wilk, Cato Institute. <clears throat> Just looking at the practical implications of, of what you're saying, what you've researched, uh, I was wondering if you could give us maybe a roadmap for how liberty of contract could sort of be revived looking at you know, Obamacare and other laws passed recently by the federal government. Yeah. Well, um, if we... You know, we were talking earlier about the Lawrence case, and I think what, what's extraordinary about 
Lawrence v. Texas. Uh, people don't talk about the, you know, that's, that's, for those of you who aren't familiar with that, that's the Supreme Court opinion in, in 2005, um, striking down the Texas law cr criminalizing sodomy. Uh, and we don't think about that as the right to engage in sodomy. We don't even think, as I said, you know, Justice Kennedy didn't even label it necessarily as a privacy case, although it's usually thought of as in, in that line of cases. Um, he pointed to the protection of liberty under the new product. Now he said liberty in intimate personal relations uh, with another person. But, you know, as I, as I suggested with my comments earlier about, you know, why isn't, uh, you know, a person's right to control their own body to determine how many hours they work or what, what wages they work, why isn't that part of the, of the right to privacy? If we really took liberty seriously, if we really enforced the due process clauses the way the framers of the Constitution intended them to, to be enforced, to protect liberty and property rights broadly, um, then, you know, when in debating the constitutionality of so-called Obamacare, um, we wouldn't simply be talking about, you know, does it go beyond the scope of the Commerce Clause or does it go beyond the scope, you know, these federalism, we'd be talking about the genuine right to health care that's often overlooked today. People who talk about a right to health care uh, talk about uh, uh, so-called welfare right, government guaranteeing health care, health insurance for you, which means somebody else paying for your own cost. There is a genuine right to health care under a legitimate theory of constitutional rights. That's the right of an individual to enter into a contract for the purchase of health care services directly with a doctor or other provider or with an insurance company to buy insurance. You have the right of individuals to enter into contracts to provide for their own health care. That's the liberty interest. That's the freedom that Obamacare is destroying. I think, you know, the, the, the House of Representatives in 112 Congress, there's been a lot of uh, debate in the news lately about uh, uh, the repeal bill, calling it the jobs-killing uh, uh, health care law. They ought to be calling it the freedom-destroying health care law, because that's what the debate really ought to be about. All right. With that, we're going to um, bring it to a conclusion. The book is available just outside uh, in hard uh, copy or soft cover, uh, and, and uh, David will be glad to sign it for you. And uh, let's give him a good round of applause. Thank you.